Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Hello and welcome to the Fitz on Fantasy Podcast. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. Find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. So glad to have you here with me this week. The show is returning from a one-week hiatus. It was sort of an unplanned hiatus, quite honestly. So I apologize if you sought out this podcast last week and heard only the chirping of crickets. But I do not expect any more hiatuses. Hiatuses? I I do not expect any more breaks for quite a while. Uh, This episode is being recorded just nine days before the first day of the NFL draft, and these next two pre-draft episodes are going to be very heavy on prospect talk. That will certainly be the case on this episode with my guest, Russell Clay. He's a college analyst and a college DFS expert for FantasyGuru.com, and he is a bevy of interesting thoughts on these rookies-to-be. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. Then there's going to be a final pre-draft episode with another very esteemed college football analyst. And then in the first episode after the draft, I'm sure there's going to be a heavy focus on where the rookies landed, how they might fit on their new NFL teams, and who they might displace. And then, well, and then it's going to be mid-May, And we'll kick off some three and a half months of heavy fantasy draft prep. There's going to be plenty to talk about, and I promise to deliver a steady stream of interesting, insightful guests. Okay, friends, before I get on with the show, allow me to pause for just a few seconds to be a selfish bastard by asking you to rate and review the Fits on Fantasy podcast on iTunes and subscribe to it too, of course. Your ratings and reviews and subscriptions are a big, big help. And as Bluto Blutarski might say, it don't cost nothing. All right. With that self-serving bit of business out of the way, let's bring in this week's guest, Russell Clay. All right, everyone. The NFL draft is coming up next week. So I had to find a guest who can wax eloquent on some of the prospects looking to make the jump from the college ranks to the NFL. And I have just the guy with me here now. He is Russell Clay. Russell is the lead writer for fantasyguru.com and a DFS, college DFS specialist for Guru Elite, a very astute college football analyst, and anyone who follows him on Twitter can attest that he really knows his stuff when it comes to college prospects. You can find him on Twitter at Russell J. Clay. Russell, thanks for being here, man. Welcome to the show. 
Awesome. Thanks, Pat. It's it's cool to finally put a voice to the uh, the Twitter handle. And uh, this is yeah we. <laughs> We were talking about this backstage, how we have, uh, you know, followed each other for a long time. I think I joined Twitter and God, I forget what year it was, 2011, 2012. And, uh, you know, we, we sort of started bantering right away. And uh, yeah, like you said, it's, it's great that we finally get to talk. Yeah. So let's dive in on some of these prospects. And um, why don't we start at receiver and just such a, a fascinating wide receiver class, Russell. I know you're pretty high on it overall. And other people have said that there are a lot of wide receiver two, wide receiver three types in this class, but no surefire wide receiver ones. So regardless of whether you like this group or don't like this group, what stands out to me maybe is that it's sort of a flat class. And what I mean by that is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of separation between the top prospects and maybe not even all that much separation between the first few tiers of receivers. But I don't know. That's just my impression. What's your take on this group? So I, I think, and I actually know there's very few things I know except no, there are a lot of things I know, but there are very few things that are this clear to me which is that the 2019 class, the wide receiver class, is fully based on, like, your opinion on it is fully based on how you feel about Nikhil Harry and A.J. Brown. So either you're really, really high on them, like I am, or you're not, and then you kind of think this is a weak class. And, And there's really... So... Based on what I've seen so far in rankings and the talk of this class, it it sounds like there's a widespread opinion, but there's really two groups. There's this is an exciting class with a ton of upside, and I really like the top end, and also the other end where it's like, eh, I don't really like this class. Let's get to 2020. And I... I land in 2019. I'm I'm in on this class. So it it, it is two very very widely uh, ranged opinions for sure. Yeah, you mentioned um, Nikhil Harry and AJ Brown. So why don't we start with those two guys? And uh, so I know you live in Arizona, and you've undoubtedly had a chance to follow Nikhil Harry pretty closely. So. You're obviously high on him. Are you at all worried about his ability to get separation from NFL cornerbacks? So Harry checks a few boxes for me that are a little unique uh, and something a lot of people do not take into account. I I look at special teams, rushing usage, and an overall versatility of production in wide receivers. And I think that's very valuable in indicating what type of player they are and how versatile and how skilled they are to manage different situations. And I, I look back to a guy like Keenan Allen, who, you know, back in the day, Keenan Allen was not only not viewed as a top end guy. He was viewed as a low ceiling prospect because he didn't test out well. His final season went terribly. uh, And he had 
one of the worst quarterback situations in college football. And all of these things created a situation where he was forced to be a screen guy, a, a yak guy close to the line of scrimmage. Uh, they put him on punt returns. They had him throwing passes. They had him doing all this crazy stuff because he was their only, I mean, they had Marvin Jones there for a little while as well, but uh, I see some resemblance to Nikhil Harry's situation where I viewed Manny Wilkins as a major liability. Um, and I do, I do think there's credence to the idea that, that Harry does have issues separating. I just look at all the things he does well and specifically with the punt returns and kick returns and, and rushing yards. And I see a guy who can make people miss. Uh, and this was another thing. This was with Tyler Boyd as well, uh, where he had a pretty mediocre quarterback situation and his final season, they turned him into, uh, he had a ton of rushing attempts and, uh, you know, his yards perception went way down because he was used so close to the line of scrimmage. I saw a very similar situation with Harry, and uh, I mean, I think it's it's sort of the same read from scouts as those two prospects where they sort of see a low ceiling, uh, but the difference between Harry and those two is Harry had a 90th percentile speed score, uh, and he's enormous, and I, I think he is... Uh, really close to Des Bryant as a prospect. And um, I don't know how to get off that. I, I, when I'm, you know, distanced from my, from others in a, in a prospect view, I tend to look at the other side and say, okay, am I, what am I doing wrong here? What are they seeing that I'm not? And I do recognize the concerns but I've just seen it happen so many times where players are viewed as separation issues. And this was, people want to forget this, but this was a huge thing with Juju as well. Juju Smith-Schuster, that entire rookie summer, people were talking about how he had issues separating. Um, And I think he's an outside receiver as well. I do not um, think he's going to be a full-time inside receiver. I think he he looks like to me a pure outside receiver, but um, so obviously like I have a much different opinion of him uh, and read on him as a prospect than a lot of people. So there's, there's my, my dump of uh, hairy information. I'm with you. I think for me, he's one or two also. And um, you know, just productive from the jump at Arizona State's, 58 catches for 659 yards as a freshman and two rushing touchdowns. You mentioned that, you know, he had some uh, utility as a runner and as a punt returner. And then, uh, you know, the last two years, a thousand yard receiver both times with 155 total grabs his last two years at Arizona State. So, yeah, just really productive overall. And, uh, you know, the, the nice early breakout age, which is appealing so you also mentioned A.J. Brown. Um, is Harry your number one and Brown your number two? Is that right? That's correct, yes. Uh, Brown is is another guy that I'm really excited about. I love 
his production, uh, specifically when adjusted for his level of competition. Uh, he, he had a, he had a really tough strength of schedule throughout his career, uh, specifically with defenses and, you know, he just shined the whole way through. He had some really tough competition for, for targets in that depth chart and he performed very well. Uh, as you mentioned, Harry had a great freshman year. Uh, Brown had an okay freshman year, uh, but you know Evan Ingram was there, and he he did play significant snaps. But yeah, I mean everything about Brown kind of points to uh, generally a, a successful NFL wide receiver. Uh, you look at the size, uh, tested out more athletic than you'd expect, has a really nice production profile, and I just don't see any weaknesses in his game, really. I, I just feel like he's an automatic win, basically. If you draft him in a rookie draft, I just feel like he's going to be good. Maybe he's not going to be you know, DeAndre Hopkins, but I'm very confident like he'll be starting uh, within the next two years in your fantasy lineup so yeah with these crazy ranges of opinions on all these prospects these wide receiver prospects it seems like aj brown is maybe one of the least polarizing guys in this group it seems like everyone is confident he's going to be good and it's just a question of whether he has greatness in his upper end range of outcomes so the guy who obviously is more polarizing and who people are all over the map on is his teammates at Ole Miss, uh, DJ Metcalf. So as extremely polarizing as he is, uh, you know, widely considered to be this boomer bust guy. And I've heard your take on it, and uh, it's it kind of, you know, straightforward. But why don't you uh, talk about what you see DJ Metcalf being and, and this uh, boom bust profile he has. Yeah, DK Metcalf is a very interesting player and one that's very rare. And I think that's going to cause a lot of uh, friction with evaluators because there there simply haven't been there hasn't been a guy like him before. I mean, there have been athletic uh, players from Power Five schools, but there hasn't been a guy who ran a a four three three at two hundred and twenty eight pounds. <laughs> And so, you know, we can nitpick his production profile all we want and it's not very good, but one of, one of the things that needs major context is those injuries. Uh, and one of the things I've been focusing on, uh, the last few years is kind of injuries and how it affects careers. I think bust rates have a lot more to do with injuries than than people want to admit. And I think if you're evaluating DK Metcalf, you have to realize he's coming into the NFL already with two major injuries. So uh, the odds that we see, you know, five years of, of everything of full potential DK Metcalf, I don't, I don't know how optimistic I am about that, but if we do, uh, you know, I would ignore the production with him. He's been hurt his whole career. Like he had major injury, played a year working back from it, and then uh, you know, got hurt in his final season. So we don't 
we don't really know what he is. Uh, obviously, some film guys love him. Uh, people hate the agility stuff, but I'm betting on the four three three, the the family lineage. Uh, you know, his dad was a NFL offensive lineman, and uh, I, I'm betting on him. I it just seems like he's got so many uh, good qualities. The only thing I'm worried about is the injuries. Yeah, Terrence Metcalf was his dad, right? And wasn't isn't his grandpa like Terry Metcalf, who was a uh, star for the Cardinals back in the day? Yep, Terry Metcalf, and then Eric Metcalf's in there somewhere. They have like a crazy family tree of of like awesomeness. So, yeah, and you know, I think it's okay to. I, I feel like everyone is compelled to choose sides on where they are in the DK Metcalf thing. And I I think it's okay to just acknowledge that he's got this enormous range of outcomes that he is just, you know, this freak physical specimen who might just be able to, uh, you know, use those physical traits to, um, you know, realize his uh, upper end range of possible outcomes. But at the same time, you mentioned the injuries, you mentioned the, checkered production history in college so um yeah certainly a guy who could go a bunch of different directions um you know and and kind of a dicey a dicey but tempting pick in rookie dynasty league drafts um let's talk about hakeem butler russell and it it seems like he's kind of enjoying a surge in popularity at least among fantasy analysts Evan Silva Roto World has expressed fondness for him in recent days. So has Graham Barfield of NFL.com. But Daniel Jeremiah of the NFL Network doesn't rank Butler as a top 50 overall prospect. Uh, it's easy to see the attraction here. He's 6'5", 227, has a huge catch radius and sub 4.5 speed. And he had over 1,300 yards at Iowa State last year. But... Didn't really break out until last year as a 21-year-old redshirt junior. Um, two years ago, he was just kind of a complimentary receiver at, at uh, Iowa State. And the leading receiver for the Cyclones was Alan Lazard, who played just one game as a rookie last year and is probably a long shot to even make a roster this year. Um, so you had tweeted out a list of your top 10 receivers, and – I think Thor Nystrom of Roto World took you to task in a very funny and good-natured way for ranking Butler fifth and Emmanuel Hall sixth, presumably because you were too low on Butler and too high on Hall. But uh, I don't know. It sounds like you're somewhat neutral on Butler. Why don't you give me your thoughts on him? Yeah, so obviously there's appeal. And you mentioned a lot of people coming out in favor of him, Evan Silva, uh, Graham Barfield, and then... Greg, Greg Cosell, uh, who's a really bright mind, also came out and was really high on him. Matt Waldman has him as his number one receiver in this class. And so I was not expecting any of this, you know, especially a guy who I, I track them. I, I play DFS, college football DFS, and kind of I'm with these guys for a few years. So it was I, I knew he put together a great final season. Uh, but I was not expecting the the love fest that came in. So I I saw this now. I, I went back and I I watched some more and I rechecked uh, you know his production profile and uh, he's an interesting prospect. And 
I see him as as sort of a a second round guy, and uh, you know, I I threw out some names uh, the other day, uh, Malcolm Kelly and uh, Limus Swede, and people hear those names and they think, oh gosh, no, you know, and and like they have this visceral reaction, but at the time. Uh, Malcolm Kelly was a really, a really interesting prospect. And as was Lima Swede, I mean, people were really high on Lima Swede. They thought he was going to be. Lima Swede was a baller for Texas, man. He was really good. We, we thought, I won't say, I won't speak for everyone. I won't speak for you, Pat, but a, a lot of people, uh, were really high on Lima Swede in, in, in not so Butler's more athletic, Butler had a better final season and and there are clearly distinctions to be made where Butler has a higher ceiling than those players but I don't want to put him in the AJ Green type category that I'm seeing uh if I respect that opinion but I can't I can't go there because Green was I mean he stepped onto a college football field and was immaculate uh you know and Butler the hang up for Butler with me is the Alan Lazard thing. I, I talked about this on the Roster Watch podcast, uh, but it, it's just strange to me that a like a prolific first round, high first round prospect wouldn't be able to beat out Alan Lazard. You know, I I just don't I, I can't do it. You know, I can't do it. There, there's certain things I can't do, and uh, you know, if you put. Amari Cooper or Des Bryant on that Iowa State team, they would have, you know, shoved Lazard in a locker, basically. So <laughs> two years ago, Butler barely outproduced someone named Marchie Murdoch on Iowa State. And, um, and let me tell you, that's not great. That's that's not great. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that late breakout age is definitely kind of a red flag. Um Another guy who seems to be gaining in popularity in the run-up to the draft is Marquise Brown, also known as Hollywood Brown. So Hollywood has some serious jets and... He's had two pretty nice seasons for Oklahoma. There's a growing consensus that he's going to be a first-rounder and maybe the only first-round wide receiver in the draft next Thursday. But this guy is only 166 pounds, and he's dealing with a list Frank injury, which is kind of a frightening injury. So where are you on Hollywood? You know that uh, early internet or early YouTube days when they had the, the dramatic turnaround with the, I think it was a squirrel, and it goes dun dun dun, and then the the squirrel turns around. Yes. That's that's what I did. I did that when I saw Daniel Jeremiah's tweet that Mar- Marquise Brown was going to be a first rounder. I I I didn't see that one coming, uh, and I don't understand that one uh, purely because of the size. Uh, you know, you want to talk about John Ross? John Ross was 190 pounds at the combine. Uh, Hollywood is in the 160s. That's like JJ Nelson. So, uh, 
there so i do a lot of queries you know draft queries and searching for stats and searching for trends and all that fun stuff and when you get down to you know below 175 and and then even go a step further and go below 170 what are we doing here? Uh, <laughs> he'd he'd have to be a pretty special outlier, uh, unless unless NFL teams know he he is heavier than that weight that I saw, which was one sixty six. Uh, if he's one sixty six in the NFL, I do not see how he can be, uh, you know, a full time hundred and twenty hundred and forty target a year guy. Uh, you know, Tyreek Hill is small, but he's built like a brick house, you know, and uh, if Brown can run a four, two, I, I wouldn't, it, I wouldn't put it past him. That wouldn't shock me. I just uh, for, for our purposes, for fantasy purposes, I do worry a little uh, about his ceiling. If that's his actual weight, if, you know, if it's not, and he gets into the one seventies, then okay, he can be Deshaun Jackson, but um, and I, I, there's no track record of guys this light going in the first round. As, as I mentioned, Deshaun Jackson, who is basically the epitome of perfect small receiver. You know, he used 175, and he went in the second round. So, um, there's really no precedent for Hollywood Brown, but it'd be an interesting data point if he did go in in round one. It'd be shocking. I'll tell you that. It kind of reminds me of the uh, late pre-draft helium that Tavon Austin got. He came out with the Rams where people just, it seemed like there was a, a surge of enthusiasm for what he might be able to do, do for a team. And, you know, what we found out was that he wasn't able to do quite as much as people thought and that he was really, you know, more of a gadget and special teams guy than uh a guy who could be, you know, a regular contributor to an offense. So yeah, it's a guy that small. And, and I mean, honestly, the foot injury scares the hell out of me too, because it seems like with the list, Frank, a lot of times these guys have to have not one, but two surgeries to correct this. And, uh, you know, a guy who's already coming in with that, I don't know. It's just a little, a little worrisome for me. And I would have a real hard time, if I was an NFL GM pulling the trigger on him with the first round pick, <clears throat> um, Russell, I mentioned how Thor Nystrom gave you some shit about having Hakeem Butler ranked fifth. Uh, he also gave you a little bit of good natured grief for having Butler behind Paris Campbell of Ohio State. And in doing so, I think Thor referred to Paris Campbell as Big Curtis Samuel. <laughs> Is that a fair comp? I mean, Curtis Samuel isn't bad. So is a, a big Curtis Samuel really that big a negative? So, yeah, take that however you want. I love Curtis Samuel. <laughs> so um, I, I'm a huge Curtis Samuel fan. And I was as it, it's kind of like I have this this process now, uh, specifically with slot receivers where um and I saw this with Samuel a few years ago as well, where he ran that 4-3-1-40, uh, and people kind of wanted to slot him in as a deep threat. I, I always viewed him as sort of a pure slot who, who might be able to run some deep targets, but 
Uh, these guys are both really dynamic, uh, close to the line of scrimmage. And that's, that's how I see them optimally used. Uh, I think Campbell has a little more potential as a, as a downfield receiver, but ultimately if he's going to be a success, a team's going to get him in there. Uh, an OC is going to be like, okay, Paris, we're going to give you, you know, 60, 60 receptions a year, 20 to 25 rushing attempts a year, and you're going to make some big plays and help out our quarterback, uh, you know, bump up that yards per attempt on some short passes and and uh, make him look better uh, than he is. I don't know who that quarterback is. Maybe like, uh, like Derek Carr, <laughs> you know what I mean? A guy like that uh, who might need some help. Uh, and that's kind of what I see Paris Campbell as obviously basically a hundredth percentile athlete. Uh, and he's going to be a dynamic NFL player. And, and we see these types of players go two ways in the NFL. Either they turn into, you know, Ted Ginn, who before his saints run was basically just a punt returner and, you know, ran, uh, go routes and, and took end arounds. Or they become, you know, Percy Harvin or, um, you know, in the best case scenario, an Antonio Brown. But um, I, I think Paris Campbell is a really, really intriguing prospect. And the produ- production profile is ugly, but it, it there's reasons behind it. As mentioned, Curtis Samuel is there eating up all those, all those uh, touches, which is basically... Paris Campbell's usage so he didn't he was kind of boxed out of production for a little while there and uh finally really came into his own this year so I like him a lot I, I can understand why you wouldn't want to take a risk on on the projection yeah I mean maybe what Thor was getting at was that he was a short area receiver that he had this low average depth of targets Paris Campbell did and and really you know Curtis Samuel uh was used in kind of the same way. And that was maybe just the Ohio state offense. And um, you mentioned Ted Ginn and it was like, they just did not use Paris Campbell in that sort of vertical elements that, uh, you know, a a guy like Ginn uh, was used in back in the day, or even going way beyond that Joey Galloway, if you remember him, you know, so Paris Campbell was just not that kind of vertical receiver at Ohio State, but that doesn't mean he can't do it, you know? So um, like you said, it kind of depends on on the landing spot. And, um, you know, but I think a team that drafts Paris Campbell might have a plan for him and, uh, you know, a, a decided way that they want to use him. So, um, you know, I, I like him a lot too. Um, here's another somewhat polarizing guy, Russell, Miles Boykin of Notre Dame, 6'4", 220 pounds, 4'4", speed, and just uh, terrific testing numbers. You talked about Paris Campbell being like 100 percentile athletes, and Miles Boykin is right there with him. But pretty uninspiring college production, to say the least. So how do you feel about Boykin? Uh, I think he's clearly interesting. Uh, he's in that, that Chris Conley uh, spectrum of athlete where you're like, oh my God, you know, you look at those numbers and it's spectacular. So uh, the Miles Boykin journey has been a long one and confusing and painful and 
and at times sad where he's just standing on the side <laughs> getting getting you know you shoved in a locker for the second time on this podcast uh you know Equinemia St. Brown kind of pushed him aside for a few years and uh so a, a thing to know if you're going to look at Boykin's production uh number 1 his quarterback situation was horrific for the first two for the first two and three quarters seasons of of his uh or two and a quarter we'll go two and a two and a quarter seasons where Brandon Wimbush was the guy and he just wasn't a thrower of the football and I I'm trying to be kind because he just wasn't uh, that wasn't his game. He he was an athletic guy who, you know, could maybe complete some dump offs. But once you try to go run routes and throw deep passes, that he's just a total liability. So Boykin really came on in the second half of of Notre Dame's 2018 season because Ian Book, uh, their backup, was finally installed into the lineup. And he was able to complete those throws to Boykin, you know, throw it up on 15, 20 yard routes down the field and, and let Boykin make plays. And then he really started to flourish. So, uh, he's a, a big projection as well. Cause we saw a very small sample of success, but, uh, there's definitely possibilities where this guy just suffered through a terrible situation, uh, and we got to see the light uh, of what he could be with a with a, a a competent quarterback. So there is real upside here, and I know I know Matt Waldman's really high on him as well. So worth taking into account. Where do you think approximately he should slot in, like a dynasty rookie draft, like maybe uh, back end of the second round, or maybe a little bit higher than that? So I I I. Uh, created a rookie mock draft of where I'd take the guys um, on March 11th. So basically a month ago and I had Boykin at 210 uh, right next to uh, Irv Smith and Debo Samuel and Marquise Brown. Um, But it, it seems like there's a lot of interest there, especially after the combine. So doesn't seem like he's going to be there that late. I'm assuming post draft and I'd I'd project him right now as a top 3 round guy. I'd guess he ends up in the early second range, 21 to 205, somewhere in there. It just I, it's one of those guys where you know someone in every league is going to take him earlier than maybe they should. I, he's just that classic guy this year. So um, it, it might be worth the risk, but I definitely don't see him sliding in pretty much any drafts. Yeah, especially if he's a day two pick. Right, uh, right. If he comes off the board next Friday, he probably goes in the top half of, of the second round of a rookie draft. Um, I'm anxious to hear your take on J.J. Arcega-Whiteside since you get uh, a lot of Pac, Pac-12 exposure down in Arizona. What do you think of JJ? I th- I think those uh those snotty-nosed rich kids need to leave me alone. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um he's an interesting guy. I was shocked with his athletic testing. 
Uh, I'd imagine his athletic testing was the way a lot of people felt about Harry's uh, athletic testing. I didn't see that coming. Uh, So he's got a pretty interesting skill set. And this is a really unique class and why people are all over the place. Because, I mean, how many prospects did we just go through where there's just such a small there's just no comparison for a lot of these guys the the athletic profile along with weird production or weird weight uh and Arsega Whiteside is this hulking mass of a man who tested out really well and was fantastic in the red zone and uh had some really dominant games where he just took over and uh obviously that's something you're interested in uh in terms of potential for a guy like this and uh again the speed score uh let let's do some good podcasting as i look up his speed score and i'm just gonna keep talking until i find it well it's it's while you're looking it up i'll i'll just fill fill in by saying uh you know it's it is kind of a perception thing with our sega Whiteside, like you know, he's got these fantastic ball skills and, uh, you know, his proponents are going to point to those and his uh, detractors are going to say, well, he's got to use those ball skills because he can't separate. So, um, yeah, I got you know, it. He's, so he's got- uh, adjusting for the pro day, we're, we're looking at an 87th percentile speed score. And I mean, that's partially because of his size. He ran a I think a four four nine, but you have to adjust that for pro days. Um, yeah, he's a big dude. He's he's a huge dude, uh, and I think we have to value that. And and him being that athletic and him putting together that interesting production the last two years, we have to take him seriously. And and you mentioned something about you know I'm I'm pretty much a centrist. You know I, I I'm a I'm a centrist draft evaluator where. I, I like having both sides of the argument. You know, I, I argue with myself, as weird as that sounds. Um, you know, if I believe something strongly, I'm going to go look at what the other people are saying and and double check my work. So, yeah, with our Sega Whiteside, there's going to be people all over the board. But I think generally speaking, we should be optimistic, as, especially after the athletic testing. I think he's going to be you know, a third or fourth round selection. Uh, so he's going to get some reasonable opportunity for fantasy production and sh- seems like a pretty good bet to me. How about some of these other guys? Is there anyone you are particularly enthusiastic about from a group that includes, say, uh, Kelvin Harmon, Andy Isabella, Debo Samuel, Riley Ridley, Emmanuel Hall, um, any of those guys get your heart racing, especially? Yeah, let's let's talk about Emmanuel Hall. Uh, I don't see many people standing for Emmanuel Hall at this stage in the draft process, uh, partially because you know he's super fast, but he it, there's so many weird and athletic profiles in this class that he didn't stand out as much as maybe he should have. Uh, he was a really special player in 2018. He got injured uh, right before the Georgia game. And I remember this because I was I was breaking down that slate 
and he was a game time decision, game time decision. And, you know, I was in the, in the group chat or the, the, the DFS chat with all the, the college football guys. And, uh, you know, we limited our exposure, uh, but we still had some and he was just running dummy routes. Like he was a pure decoy and that he was like that for a few games and then finally got healthy again. Um, He's another injury guy, but when he's on the field, he's super explosive, and he could be a a more valuable NFL asset where he's the lid popper uh, that can really make teams uh, make opposing defenses adjust for him. Maybe he's not a fantasy guy, but I see him very similarly to DJ Chark from last year, who was a second rounder. Very very similar profiles there. Once again, I'm being joined by Russell Clay. He's the lead writer for FantasyGuru.com and a DFS specialist for Guru Elite. Follow him on Twitter at Russell J. Clay. Uh, Russell, so you're deep into college football, obviously, and you have to be to analyze college DFS professionally. I mean, it's just so much trickier to keep tabs on the college player pool than it is with the relatively limited NFL player pool. So I'm curious about the origins of your football fandom and especially your college football fandom. I mean, when did you fall in love with football and what eventually steered you towards the college game? So what sparked football for me was most certainly Sunday mornings in nineteen. you know, the, the late nineties when the internet wasn't quite there yet, my dad would get the Sunday paper and I would see they'd have all the, the, the teams who were playing in the paper and we'd like pick the games. And, um, I, I really got into those helmets. They had, I forget what local paper it was, but they had the NFL team helmets. And I just, I was all in, you know, my dad was a big Cowboys fan and, um, it, it really grew from there. Uh, fantasy football started early as well, <laughs> where I was playing in leagues. I probably legally wasn't supposed to be playing in. Um, but it, you know, we kind of got into that early. My, my brother, uh, my older brother got me into a, a league pretty early as well. I was big into Madden. Um, you know, I, I don't know when it started, probably first grade or, or earlier, uh, I actually hated sports until that age. Uh, I was the kid who was on the soccer field picking the grass and, you know, the parents are like, oh, that kid needs to quit sports. Like that was me until eight years. I was a big, uh, Power Rangers and uh, Beast Wars guy. I-, I was a big Beast Wars guy for a while there. But um, yeah, and then uh, college football started. I-, I randomly went into a store and there was a hat selection. And I was always a contrarian from the beginning. And uh, I saw a red hat with a W, a white W on it. And uh, that was the day I picked my college football team, which was Wisconsin. And uh, you know, they, a big advantage for me growing up was they were always on ESPN. So even though I was in Massachusetts, I always got to catch the, um, the early, early start, uh, game, you know, if they're playing Bowling Green or who, whatever Mac team they were playing that week. Uh, you know, I got to see PJ Hill and John Clay and (laughs) 
all these all these tubby running backs plow through the hole. Oh, right. but, um, yes. Yeah. I know I liked you for a reason, Russell. I mean, <laughs> you're randomly picking my school as your favorite team. Yes. Totally random. It was great. <laughs> so, um, you know, you, you recently did some work on success rates for draftees based on the round in which they were chosen. And you posted some pretty interesting visuals on your timeline, which, you know, I would urge People, once again, check out Russell's Twitter timeline at Russell at Russell J. Clay. Um, And it showed the hit rates for guys in each round. So uh, what did your research reveal about the importance of draft capital and where these guys go? Yeah, and so it's, it's a weird situation because... People can take those charts a lot of different ways. And, uh, you know, for fantasy purposes, I do tend to stress like early round guys are where you want to place your bets. But I also don't want to ruin the fun of draft season and the fun for most fantasy people, especially people that enjoy it as a hobby, you know, and I think that's almost all of us uh, who aren't playing for you know, uh, thousands of dollars and maybe someone just got two or three dynasty leagues or one rookie draft this year, like have fun. You know, I'm not telling you to stop liking your favorite player because he got picked in the fourth round. Um, I'm just trying to give a demographic idea of what you should be expecting, you know, from a fourth round pick. This is what fourth round picks do. This is what third round picks on average do like this. This is what their career odds look like um, over the last two decades. So I'm I'm a big proponent proponent of creativity within the tiers. So for my personal strategy, uh, especially in dynasty leagues and especially say in a best ball league uh, that's season long. I really only take chances on players that are drafted in the top three rounds of the NFL draft just because the odds I look at, um, anything beyond that, and it's just such a low hit rate of of success Uh, and there's always going to be outliers you know there's always going to be antonio brown and and it's actually fascinating to go through the last two generations because this stuff it's like they replace each other as soon as one guy vanishes another appears it's like you go from miles austin to who was you know undrafted free agent and there were a few more and then you get to adam thielen and it's like, man, there's some weird, uh, you know, cosmic energy that it just. Oh, sure. I mean, it's it, like these guys have a low hit rate, but guys hit all the time. You know, it might correct. Be, and, and you laid out, um, was it a thousand yards? You used as the statistical benchmark, reaching a thousand yards. Um, yards but, from scrimmage for running backs and 800 receiving yards for. Wide receivers, yeah. yeah. So you're talking about, uh, you know, I think if I can remember some of the charts you had that, uh, you know, for fourth rounders and beyond, it might have been like 10 or 14 percent, you know, chance of of hitting that. And, you know, but there are always 
a lot of guys going in the fourth round or beyond. So there are going to be guys who hit that. And it's just, um, you know, it's, it's obviously it's harder to pick the right ones when you're, when you're fishing in that, uh, in that pond. Right. So I'll give you, I'll give you one. And I posted them, um, you know, on my timeline. So you can go check them out if you want. Uh, but yeah, third round. So this is for one season, one season of 800 receiving yards, a third rounder, 28% of them get one season. And then when you go to fourth round, it drops to 12.9%. Um, you know, and, and you start to look at two, three, four seasons. So those are the fantasy relevant players that are going to be helping us, you know, for multiple seasons. Uh, only 5.9% of fourth round wide receivers have two seasons of, you know, 800 receiving yards. So that's just not a pool that's going to provide much assistance for us in a fantasy way. Russell, we should talk about running back prospects um, as, it, as we wind down here in the pod. But uh, so I guess what's your overall takeaway on this group? Are you as turned off by this year's running back class as everyone else seems to be? Uh, no, uh, only because I, you know, as mentioned, I'm kind of an odds guy. And the last time we had a class that looked like this, uh, we got Le'Veon Bell. <laughs> so, uh, it, it was 2013 and it was a really gross class and there, there weren't many, uh, standout prospects, but there's always going to be, uh, players that go in that second to third round range that will have opportunity for success. And um, I think there's a market inefficiency right now because people are correct in assessing this as a below average class, but that doesn't mean they're all going to be terrible. You know, some of these guys are going to be good. And that's, that's really the philosophy I've migrated to where I'll bet on multiple players like out of Daryl Henderson, Josh Jacobs and Miles Sanders. I'll bet on one of them to become a perennial uh, fantasy contributor and maybe even a stud, you know, if they land in the right situation. So um, I also really like Damian Harris. I think Bryce Love and Rodney Anderson are very interesting injured players that uh, could sneak into a situation and maybe have a red shirt. Uh, first season, but then spring out and and really emerge in year two. So uh, I I I mean, there's no way we don't get some fantasy potential from this group. You know, it's just maybe we don't know who it is right now. Sure, there's always opportunities for the rookie running backs, and it's just a matter of um, you know who gets that opportunity. And I I know that you know I think sight unseen, you almost have to. Um, like if I could take whoever is going to be the top running back that the Buccaneers draft, you know, whoever it is, it could be Karan Higdon who might not be in my top 10, but I would vault him into my top 10 just because of the opportunity he would have with the Buccaneers. Um, now you have Henderson, Daryl Henderson ranked as your top running back ahead of both Josh Jacobs and David Montgomery. Is that right? Correct. Um, yeah, I know several weeks ago I had, Curtis Patrick of Dynasty League Football on the show, and he expressed his great admiration for Henderson. Obviously, 
you hold him in pretty high regard too. So um, tell me about why he's your number one. Well, he is a beautiful man. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> uh, everything about his profile screams uh, special chunk player. Uh, and how many touches he gets in an offense could limit him. You know, if a team drafts him in the second or third round and uh, he gets sort of slotted into a third down only role, then that might limit his his fantasy potential for what I think it could be. But I don't think, again, we're talking about floor here. I don't think there's any chance that he comes into the NFL and isn't a helpful uh, player from a real football perspective. So I'm confident that he's going to get on the field early and make positive plays. Uh, a lot of people don't like his production because it was in a small conference, which is fair. Uh, but when a guy averages 8.9 yards per carry in a full season, eh, you know, at some point, uh, it, it maybe that's inflated. Even if you take away a yard and a half uh, penalty for his conference, I mean, that's still really special. Uh, ran fast enough for me to be confident he can make explosive plays. And, uh, you know, that, that production profile is pretty special the last two seasons. So it's a weak class. He probably wouldn't be in my top eight uh, in 2018. He'd probably be RB9 in 2018, maybe right in there with Ronald Jones. But um, for this class, yeah, I think he has real potential to be the guy. I mean, I'm with you because he's got the chunk play, the explosive, uh, the explosive quality that David Montgomery doesn't have. But then, you know, Henderson's never going to be a heavy-duty back, whereas Montgomery is maybe a guy who can take 20 carries a game if a team puts him in that spot. So, um, and I, I guess, I guess the reason I like Jacobs a little more than uh, either of those guys is just because he maybe has the potential to be best of both worlds, where you know he has some of that explosiveness, maybe not to the degree that Henderson does, but uh, you know might be built a little bit more for volume than Henderson is. Um, yeah, I, I, that's a fair point, and uh, Jacobs is a guy that is pretty similar to DK Metcalf from a production standpoint in that it's really, it's not that he wasn't worthy of more touches. It's that Alabama wins every game 66 to 13 and they're, they're playing their walk-ons by the mid third quarter. So that was one of his biggest issues. And then, you know, Najee Harris, uh, top overall recruit in the country gets in there and, Damian Harris, four-year guy. So right, yeah. the The actual production profile, I'm I'm more apt to throw it out the window, but um, it's tough to slot him as the RB one with with such a limited profile. Speaking of Damian Harris, you made a really interesting comparison on Twitter, saying that he reminded you of Ryan Williams, and people may have forgotten about Williams, who was a very highly regarded running back prospect from Virginia Tech, who was taken by the Cardinals early in the second round of the 2011 draft. Um, 
quick, quick story, Russell. I was on a long layover in the Denver airport in August of 2011. And uh, it was like a five hour layover because my connecting flight got canceled. So I go to the bar to get a drink and all of the TVs are showing a replay of the previous night's Cardinals Packers preseason game. Oh no. I didn't realize that Ryan Williams had torn his patellar tendon in that game until I saw it happen in the Denver airport bar. Uh, and just such a devastating injury, man. And he was just never able to get his career back on track. But uh, anyway, Ryan Williams was really good. And with your Damian Harris, Ryan Williams comp, is it because Harris is uh, much like Ryan Williams was just this average size back who runs like a big back? Yeah, they have. And so instantly, if you go, so for those of you that don't know Ryan Williams, you're going to see the same number and, you know, that goes only so far, but two power five running backs, you mentioned sort of average to slightly below average size, um, but, but pretty powerful, uh, really solid and maybe not the best at breaking tackles, but seemed to follow blocks well and were, were really productive uh, in, in the opportunities they were given. Obviously, Harris had a weird situation where he had a dominant offensive line and dominant team, so his numbers looked great. But I I thought I thought I'm impressed with him. I know I know the the ceiling doesn't look like it's there. Uh but I'm also a guy that I don't know that we're great at assessing ceiling and prospects. Uh I think that has a little more to do with uh opportunity and uh you know it, it does have a little bit to do uh with luck. So I think Harris is good enough to where he could slot himself into a good situation and really flourish for a couple of years. Um, I do think Jacobs is more talented, but I, I like both of them kind of as uh, second or third round running backs. Uh, Russell, one last thing I have to ask you about before I let you go. And this, uh, I think you're the perfect guy to ask about this since you are in a college DFS and you are tracking these guys from the jump as soon as they get into the college ranks. I think anyone who follows college football and also plays in dynasty leagues is just absolutely salivating over the class of 2020. Um, at quarterback, there's Tua and there's Justin Herbert and Jake Fromm and a wide receiver, Jerry Judy, Colin Johnson. Um, and then running back, my God, Travis Etienne, J.K. Dobbins, Jonathan Taylor, DeAndre Swift, A.J. Dillon, it's just this embarrassment of riches. Uh, how excited are you about the class of 2020? I am appropriately excited. I am an excited man. I love Travis Etienne. Uh, I think Jonathan Taylor is putting together a really, really special uh, college career. I mean, unbelievable first two seasons. Uh, I believe he's one of three freshman running backs. Uh, to have 2,000 rushing yards. Don't quote me on that. But it's like him and Adrian Peterson, basically, uh, from Power 5 schools. Boom. That's that query. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, it's good. I think the running backs are slightly overrated right now, um, at least from a production standpoint. Uh, I, they're, they're certainly not 
going to be better than the 2017 class from a production standpoint. And uh, I do not envision them being better than 2018 either. I mean, those two classes were the best of, you know, the last decade. So that's not uh, shaming them. But I I think it's a little overrated right now. Uh, Cam Akers really suffering behind that Florida State offensive line and offense. Uh, you know, DeAndre, uh, DeAndre Swift is good. I think he's very good. I don't know that he's what people want him to be. And... Uh, People really like A.J. Dillon as well. I, I think he's good. Um, but I'm holding off. I don't think it's it's close to that. But the wide receivers, yes, yes. Let's get fired up about them. Let's get fired up about Tua. Uh, it's going to be a great rookie draft, that's for sure. Jerry Judy is unbelievable to watch. <laughs> uh, if, that is the truth, man. He's, he's the second coming of Julio, isn't he? I don't know what he is. He's like, he's so fast and quick. It's like a, it's like a, I don't want to say a quicker Amari Cooper, but that's certainly what it feels like, which is pretty devastating. So yeah, he's, he's the next in line for, for special Alabama talents. Well, Russell, thank you so much for joining me and uh, for shedding some light on some of these prospects and just for geeking out on this class. Um, you do tremendous work with the college game, and I would urge listeners to check out your stuff at uh, fantasyguru.com and to follow you on Twitter at Russell J. Clay. Um, man, I mean, we just geeked out on this class so hard that I did not get a chance to ask you about some of the stuff you've done. I was going to ask you to plug your stuff, but uh, I'll do one plug for you. I know you wrote a great piece on fantasyguru.com about dynasty roster construction and your uh just overall philosophy i guess on youth versus veterans um you know it just seems like that's a thing that sort of separates dynasty owners philosophically and uh you know the degree to which they emphasize age um in the way that they value players so i'd urge people to check out that uh anything else you want to pitch before i let you go yeah, if you're if you're interested in um, you know college football, I do a weekly article about non-draft eligible prospects. I write about uh, the draft multiple times every week. Uh, I do a rookie stock watch where I break down the the news and and kind of put my uh, spin on it. So and I also do a best a best ball article. Uh, breaking down values and and overvalued and and strategy for that type of stuff as well. So lots of stuff going on this off season. A lot of good content indeed. So be sure to follow Russell at Russell J Clay. Thanks again, Russell. Really appreciate it, man. Absolutely. All right, everyone. That's going to do it for this week's show. I'd like to once again thank this week's guest, Russell Clay fantasyguru.com find him on twitter at russell j clay and thank you to my trusty producer calm kelly the show would not be possible without calm find him on twitter at overtime ireland and be sure to check out the great podcast he does with sean siegel for rotoviz it's called rotoviz overtime and you can find it at rotoviz.com big thanks to my partner in crime over at thefootballgirl.com melissa jacobs find melissa on twitter at the football girl. 
Thank you to my friends from the band International Jet Set for the music. And most of all, I thank you for checking out the show, friends. Hopefully you're getting the occasional nugget of useful information from these shows to help make you an even more successful fantasy football owner, because I know you're already successful and would be even if you didn't have this show. But we aim to make you even a little bit better. Turn that volume dial up to 11. All right, folks, just one more show before the NFL draft. And the next one might be coming out a little earlier than usual. So keep an eye on my Twitter timeline, at Fitz underscore FF. For details, I'm going to have another great guest for this next one, someone who, like Russell Clay, is really dialed into the college game and someone you might be familiar with. So stay tuned, my friends, and we will see you again soon. Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in, are you?